Welcome to the LRB podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones, and today I'm talking to Andrew O'Hagan, who's written a piece in the current issue of the LRB about the friendship between Robert Louis Stevenson and Henry James, and others in their circle, and the time they spent together in Bournemouth, of all places, in the mid-1880s. Hello, Andrew, and thank you for joining me. Hi, Tom, it's a pleasure. So, Bournemouth, it seems a long way from Treasure Island, or the Scotland of Kidnapped, or even the Edinburgh-inflected London of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde. How did Stevenson come to be there? It's funny with Stevenson. He once said that um, he took a little bit of Scotland in his shoes with him wherever he went. And it's true that uh, whether he was on the back of a donkey in the middle of the savannah or in the gold mines of California, um, or even in Bournemouth, that seemingly genteel health spa uh, that it was becoming in the mid-1880s, he was ever so Scottish and looking out from his house, Skerry Vore, named after uh, one of his uncle's lighthouses on the Western Isles in Scotland. They called it Skerry Vore after that, and he used to sit at the upper window there looking out to see, and all he could see by his own account uh, was these fictional characters he'd written about uh, or was about to write about. He, was, he had kidnapped in mind at that time, and the trials of David Balfour, out at sea, but also of Treasure Island and the seafaring past was all very vivid to him. And that was the thing about Stevenson. He was a writer who lived uh, with his material right in front of him and right at, on the tip of his tongue, as it were, at all times, no matter where he was situated. And in some ways, did it? do you think it maybe helped not to be in Scotland in the way that Ulysses, that Ulysses was written when Joyce was in Trieste and that somehow he had to leave Dublin in order to be able to write about Dublin? Is that true of Stevenson? I think that is true of Stevenson, you know, Tom. I mean, he was in that species of writer for whom the country of their imagination, the country of their origins, uh, becomes more vivid uh, the further they step back from the picture. You know that way you're sometimes in a gallery and there's, uh, I mean, it's interesting, the paintwork and the up close, you can see the brushstrokes and so on, but you can't really see the composition until you step right back. And some people, some writers are like that, I think, about their country. Only when they get a little distance can they see the shape of it and identify the rhythm and the customs and their place in the narrative somehow. Stevenson was like that. I mean, he was never in a position to write better Scottish sentences, I would argue, than when he was in Samoa. You know, the top of a mountain, you know, surrounded by swamp, uh, in sort of 46 degree heat, he was thinking about damp Edinburgh, writing his last unfinished novel, Weir of Hermiston. Beautiful writing and absolutely soaked, sodden, drich, you might say, uh, with a sense of his Scottish childhood. And that was after he'd been in his three years in, in damp Bournemouth. And he'd, he'd gone there as a writer because Fanny Stevenson, his wife's son, was at school there. And he was ill and they were looking for somewhere for him to... That's right. Stevenson was always ill. Um, and uh, any account of him has to take notice of the attempts, especially mounted by Fanny uh, Stevenson, his wife, to keep his lungs dry, as she would say, um, to keep him alive. He was at risk of hemorrhages at all times at that part of his life. He'd been ill since childhood 
and um, he had the jitters and uh, a hacking cough, a host, host, host of a cough, as he describes it in one, one of his letters. And she was always looking for somewhere, and they tried different parts of the globe. They'd just come from the south of France in 1884, and they came to see the London doctors and uh, who told Stevenson that he shouldn't return to Hier because uh, it was rife with cholera. And at the same time, they recommended Davos, but that also was thought to be a place where you could pick up illnesses very easily. So as you say, because Lloyd Osborne, Fanny's son, was at school in Bournemouth, Stevenson almost on a whim, hearing that the place was becoming a bit of a health spa, uh, decided that the warm-ish climes of southern England might do well for him. And actually, they arrived there in um, a state of high excitement, and they they enjoyed their time there at first. The weather was clement. He got through that winter. It was always a question of Robert Louis Stevenson getting through the winter. And uh, he managed that first winter of 84 into 85 quite well. And they stayed on, encouraged, of course, by the fact that Stevenson's parents, ever keen to see him stay in the British Isles, bought a house for them in Bournemouth. So that's really what planted their feet on the ground. Right, because that was one of the things that I, yeah, I was going to ask. How did he afford this this house? Because it, it wasn't royalties from Treasure Island. Interesting question, that, because yes. Stevenson was a bestseller in his day. I mean, he sold a lot of books. Uh, I mean, one of the books that he wrote in Bournemouth uh, that I talk about in the piece, uh, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I mean, that sold 40,000 copies in Britain almost right away. And uh, it was said to have sold 2 million black market rip-off copies in America uh, during uh, 1886. So he was a, he was a best-selling writer, but um, hopeless with money, had quite bad deals, uh, was always reliant on his parents for handouts, really right up to the point where his father died, which was, again, during the time, the latter time they were in Bournemouth. So they bought, uh, they bought a house for Stevenson and his wife, and they actually officially bought it for the wife. It was owned by her a gift to her, but it was intended to keep the Stevensons in England, if not in Scotland. And how did Henry James come to be in Bournemouth? Was, was it because of Stevenson or was it coincidence that they both ended up there? It was, it was coincidence really because uh, poor Henry James, uh, despite being relatively healthy himself and keen on uh, repairing to his rooms in Mayfair to go on with his next novel. I mean, a, a great sort of monk-like exemplar of uh, working practices was old Henry James. But he was always being dragged from his room, as it were, by the concerns of friends and family. And none more close and more pressing, perhaps, than his sister, Alice James, who came from Boston in that year, in 1885, with a woman called Catherine Loring, a friend, uh, some would say a lover, um, certainly an amanuensis, someone looking after her. Uh, I should say, uh, Alice James was constantly up for being looked after. She was at the very least neurasthenic. From her point of view, she was constantly ill, constantly prone, found herself in bed most of the time. Uh, she had been ill in Boston a long time. And in fact, if you look closely um, as I discuss in the piece, if you look closely at the Bostonians, that great American novel of Henry James's, uh, one that steps back from his 
famous international theme and is concentrated mainly among uh, characters in Boston. Uh, what you see there really is a sort of um, inflected depiction of his sister and her friends, I believe. In those characters in the book, you see in their idealism and in their self-consciousness, a portrait of his sister and her circle. But anyway, Alice decided that um, for the sake of her uh, mental and physical health, whatever status we should give to them, she would come to England where James was making a success of himself. Um, she arrived in Mayfair and didn't leave her room for nine weeks. Uh, doctors would turn up and sponge her spine with salt water uh, while saying privately that there was absolutely nothing wrong with her. Uh, Alice James uh, was a victim, you might say, of uh, the psychoanalytic naivety of the time. That In later times, even within 30 or 40 years, she would have been uh, considered uh, by Dr. Freud and others an interesting uh, case for study. Uh, but at that time, she was quite harassed and I think put down by the great men, the great medical men, and the great man, of course, that was her two brothers, both Henry James the novelist and William James the philosopher. Her whole life, in a sense, was an attempt to escape or to inhabit or to somehow uh, live beyond their greatness. And all of that comes up uh, during her time in England. She seeks Bournemouth as a place um, of uh, convalescence. Um, Catherine Loring, who also had a, a sick sister, a genuinely sick sister, went to, to Bournemouth to seek uh, convalescence and soon Alice James was down there too. So Henry James's initial reason for going down there was to deal with the, uh, the very real uh, trouble with Alice. But he and Stevenson were already corresponding by that point, were they? weren't they? Because after James wrote his essay, The Art of Fiction, and, and Stevenson wrote a, a reply to that. It was a very lovely meet-cute, actually. Uh, the two of them meeting in the pages of Longman's magazine, a magazine slightly like the London Review of Books in its day, uh, were conversations of um, arguably interesting kind uh, with a car. <laughs> and uh, James, as you say, had written this essay uh, in response to a lecture and uh, a piece by Walter Bassant on the nature of fiction. James's was called The Art of Fiction, quite a high-level intervention, I think I would say, about the art form we dearly love. And it sort of got Stevenson, as he sat semi-recumbent in Bournemouth, it got his dander up, but also his interest. And he wrote a response uh, called A Humble Remonstrance, which was run in the same magazine soon after. And a correspondence started up, uh, private correspondence between uh, Henry James and Robert Louis Stevenson, which led very quickly to a firm friendship. I've always been interested in literary friendship and, and in buildings disappearing, and as well as people disappearing. And all of these things come together in this story. This new friendship, Henry James uh, having reason to make his way down in the train from Waterloo to Bournemouth to see his sister Alice, decided to take up residence there and get on with his new novel, which would become The Princess Casimassima. And there he was sitting in Bournemouth. He found the town rather ugly, James. It wasn't for him in many respects, but he would have these 20-minute sessions with Alice, uh, which she both uh, demanded and endured. And then he would walk up the hill in the evening to see his new friend, Robert Louis Stevenson. And Stevenson, 
and James were firm co-admirers. Tell the story of what happened with the, the first time James went and knocked on the door. Oh, yes. Uh, there seems some poetic justice in this. That, uh, the Vostein, that the very grand Henry James turned up at Skerryvore at the house. It's number 63 Alam Chine Road. Um, he was met in the vestibule after ringing the bell by Valentine Roche, the French maid of the Stevensons, who mistook him immediately, this rather rotund, bald-headed man, for a carpet fitter who had failed to turn up uh, the week before with the, the bought-and-paid-for, um, as the Scots would say, bought-and-paid-for carpet, which was missing. And so Valentine Roche um, you know, scolded him and refused to let him in and then sent him round to the tradesman's entrance, which, um, if ever there was a great scene waiting to be dramatised, uh, I would argue it's the, the scene of the great master at the door being mistaken for a, for a carpetman. Um, Henry James took it all in good part and was soon shown into the main room where he stood before the hearth and was able to address Stevenson and Fanny as himself. It would be hard to imagine, of course, James taking on the part of the tradesman for long, not quite his style. You're listening to the LRB podcast. The LRB has a new newsletter called Diverted Traffic, which features a different piece from the paper's archive each day. A complete absence of references to plague, pandemics or quarantine is guaranteed. And the piece will be brought in front of the paywall for 24 hours, so you can share it with anyone you want to. To sign up, go to lrb.me forward slash traffic. That's lrb.me forward slash traffic. And if you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. You think of them, or, or I think of them as such different kinds of writer. And you quote um, Janet Adam-Smith, who said, critics and readers rarely couple the names of Henry James and Robert Louis Stevenson. But I wonder if those differences sort of made their mutual admiration and their friendship easier because they, weren't, they didn't feel in direct competition with one another, even if Thomas Hardy detected what you got a hint of sibling rivalry. Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, Thomas Hardy thought that he, they were uh, a couple of uh, old women, as he put it. He, they, they were somehow gossips and too much in each other's pockets. But uh, I think that was an over-response, you might say, to their mutual dislike of Teth of the D'Urbervilles, which they both thought, thought vile as a novel. Quite harsh, that, I think. Um, but you're right, they, they weren't in any sense similar as writers, although they had an absolutely shared dedication, if not obsession, to the question of prose style. They're great stylists, each of them. Robert Louis Stevenson, I think, is among the most felicitous and most engaging, most natural prose writers in the English language. He, he, the tons and the weights and measures of his prose are so particularly felicitous, uh, so musical, um, so utterly spoken and characterful um, that you can see immediately why James thought that he was a terrific writer, albeit that he wrote essentially boys' adventure stories at that point. Uh, James loved uh, Treasure Island and thought that he wouldn't have changed two words in it, which you wouldn't. I mean, every sentence turns magically and, you know, pictorially uh, in a way that very few writers 
could imitate, never mind, achieve first off. Um, and likewise, Henry James, although he would be the great master, the man, as Janet Adam Smith said, whose uh, many-volumed collected edition would sit on the shelves of the middle and upper classes and admire the seldom-read uh, adornment to their sitting rooms, whereas you'd find Robert Louis Stevenson's books up in the, uh, the infant's room, much read, much thumbed, pages torn, uh, argued over, spilt on. Um, there's the difference between them right there. But as far as they were concerned, they were each ploughing the same field. That's to say, the field of literary style. They were obsessed with the idea of what you could do with a sentence. And so each man homed in, if you like, on what was essential and very true in the other. And they sent each other letters, both um, critical and admiring about each other's work. It's actually lovely reading their correspondence. I read all of it in preparation for this article. And you see that it was possible for writers uh, rather beautifully to enter into the spirit of self-argument that writers are in all the time when it comes to their work. That to have a true literary friend isn't somebody who just tells you you're great all the time. It's somebody who will draw you out, make you better, sharpen you up, make you uncomfortable, press your uh, weak points, um, somehow encourage you to go back again, enter the lists, work harder. And they were like that for each other. And although it might have irritated one or the other occasionally when, when they didn't fully admire first time round something they produced. In the end, they had a true hearer, a true listener in the other writer. And Stevenson had that in Fanny as well, didn't he? Because of the story of him, his burning the first, the first manuscript of Jekyll and Hyde that he wrote sort of in a fever in a, in a night or, or however long it was. And then at what stage, at what stage did, would James have read, have read that book? I think James read it early, but not as early as that. I mean, not in manuscript. Fanny was Stevenson's first reader that, by that point in his life. She was actually a very gifted first reader too. Fanny was rather third-rate as a writer, but rather first-rate as a reader. And she would spot uh, weaknesses uh, and joys in Stevenson's work like nobody else could. When he first sat them down in the Blue Room at Skerry Vore, herself and Lloyd Osborne and Valentine the Maid to read them the first draft of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which he'd produced in three days, in fever, in torment, in a state of nightmare, waking up screaming images of uh, Mr. Hyde's face uh, at the window, a tremendous sense of panic and night sweats about him. Uh, Stevenson writing this amazing phasmatic, phantasmagorical story suddenly he sits down having finished and reads it to them and Fanny is agitated at the end she's finding it difficult to speak she says a few words of praise but Lloyd in his description says she was holding back it seemed perverse given how horrific and amazing the story that they just heard was and then she finally blurted out with it you've messed it up you've got it wrong you missed the allegory she said and of course, Stevenson's response was being horrified. He knew that this work was going to be a central, crucial piece of work from him. And he went upstairs rampaging, raging, feeling enormously put out by what she'd said. 
and then came tearing down the stairs only minutes later saying, you're right, I've missed the allegory. He'd made it just a story. You know, he just told it as if it was just another narrative, when in fact, the wonder of the now, I mean, the, the, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde tale that we have is that it has a mythic quality. It feels like a story about human nature. I mean, the duality that is essential to all of us. That's the living allegory, the strong and powerful philosophical pull that exists in that story, almost as if it were a Greek myth. It feels like a story that, that must have pre-existed its own writing. It's so true to the psychology of human beings, I would argue. And that was her argument. And she made him rewrite it. So tearing down the stairs, he admitted that he hadn't got it perfect and stuffed the existing manuscript into the fire. And of course, the whole family horrified at the idea of lost work. And uh, he sat down and in three days rewrote it. I mean, I should say wrote it from the beginning again and then spent six weeks revising it. So incredible gift for work that Stevenson had along with Henry James. Because we can't compare those manuscripts. And the only people who could, did, um, did his stepson ever say what he thought of the, the differences between the two versions of that? He, he didn't give us a very good account. I mean, we have an account of this episode, but I mean, he just skips over uh, the character, if you like, of the first manuscript, enough to say that it lacked the allegory that he just simply told the narrative straight. Um, so we're left to imagine just what that would have been like. I'm sure it was of enormously high quality, but Stevenson took Fanny's advice. And I think went into the, we imagine, went into the very, you know, beating heart of this nightmare story, gave her all the sort of uh, philosophical heft that it now wears so lightly. But I'm imagining that, of course, you're quite right. We don't have that first manuscript to compare. James, you, you quote James, described Stevenson as his only social resource in Bournemouth. But that wasn't quite true, was it? It wasn't true of Stevenson in any case, because there were other people. There was this man, Henry Taylor, who was... And there's an amazing link between the beginning of the 19th century and the, and the end of it. Yes, uh, Taylor was old by then and was a and... man of letters and um, you know, friend of Benjamin Jowett's, of course, the famous master of Balliol College, Oxford. And as you say, he'd known both uh, Wordsworth and Cambridge, sorry, Wordsworth and Coleridge. And um, by this point, he was a man of eminence living in Bournemouth. Um, and he was also friends, they all were, with uh, Sir Percy Shelley, not to be confused but, uh, with his father, the poet Percy Shelley. Sir Percy Shelley and his wife were great amateur theatrical buffs who lived in Bournemouth and, uh, you know, were poet tasters and, uh, you know, people of enormous uh, literary fandom. I mean, as, as, as only the child of Shelley could be. Um, he had a little shrine at their house in Bournemouth that contained the heart of Shelley that was plucked from, allegedly, from the fire, the funeral uh, pyre in Italy, of course, where, where Shelley had drowned and a shrine containing bits of his clothing and uh, books that he'd had with him uh, in that final trip to Italy. And Stevenson felt a kind of affinity with Shelley, didn't he? Or had it, or, or also an anxiety that he was the sort of dying young and people said they looked alike and there was this... Yes, he did. He had, a, he had a sense of that. People regularly told Stevenson that he looked like Shelley. He had the same, I think, thin, 
rather sort of big-eyed, long-fingered appearance. And again, as you say, he was constantly anxious, Stevenson, that his illnesses would do for him, that he would die young, which indeed he did. He had been ill for so long, and the verge of annihilation, as he saw it, um, since his earliest days, and so much of his work is written almost in a spirit of last gasp health, just a last attempt to pin the world down before he goes. It adds a very kind of beautiful, I think poetic and um, somewhat sort of hair-raising quality to Robert Louis Stevenson's writing. That it, everything feels like it could be his last observation. And he was also friends with a, a young woman called Adelaide Boodle, who he also, you quote this wonderful writing advice that he gave to her about, don't say the grass is green, because <laughs> how did they become friends? How did he come to know her? It's a lovely story, actually. Uh, I discovered uh, uh, something she'd written and then letters between them. And um, it had been too little documented, I think, the friendship that sprung up between this t- young 20-something uh, neighbour, Adelaide Boodle, um, <clears throat> who lived in the Pool Road, just one street away, and uh, wanted to be a writer one day. And then suddenly, Robert Louis Stevenson moves into the area. And with her mother, she goes and uh, rather brazenly knocks on the door at Scary Vore uh, to demand an audience with this uh, famous writer. Of course, she gets so nervous in the aforementioned vestibule, which um, had already uh, seen the humiliation of the great Henry James, uh, that she burst into tears. Um, Stevenson, uh, in his casual style, then named the vestibule the the Pool of Tears. Um, But this woman came in, the family's made friends. Uh, She soon was doing errands and helping Stevenson with uh, making fair copies of his letters and his his writing to send to magazines. And in return, he gave her what we now think of as creative writing lessons. I mean, the mind boggles to imagine what a creative writing lesson would have been like from the great RLS. But uh, there he was teaching this girl how to avoid cliches and uh, the overuse of adjectives and how to uh, stop using obvious phrases to describe the green grass and so on and to try and write inflectedly and rather more sort of pictorially about the world around her. And she took it in good part. I mean, she was brave. I mean, he would shout at her sometimes and have her almost in tears. Fanny thought he was too tough. But there she was, Adelaide Boodle. Um, she got her lessons. Uh, she did become a children's writer, in fact. And when Stevenson and Fanny and their family had moved uh, first to America and then to Samoa, she became Adelaide Boodle, what they jokingly called the gamekeeper at Scary War. She was left back in Bournemouth looking after the hedgehogs, the doves, the visit- visiting pigeons, and all the garden creatures that they had come to know during their time as friends in Bournemouth. You quote a passage of, of James on RLS in Samar and say that it, the South Pacific ushered in his completely full and rich period, the time in which his genius and his character most overflowed. But one of the things that seems to come across from your piece is that that's at least as true of his time in Bournemouth. So that's where he wrote Kidnapped, it's where he wrote Jekyll and Hyde. And it's sort of evidence of that. Well, another wonderful line of James is that you quote that the rarest works pop out of the dusk of the inscrutable, the untracked. And so one of the things I wanted to ask is, so that untracked, the untracked Bournemouth and how you 
came to track these stories down? Because you mentioned that you visited the ruins of Skerryvore, that the house isn't there anymore um, a few months ago. But did you go to Bournemouth to seek them out because you were curious about this period in, in Stevenson's and in James's life? Or did you see the house first and the piece came out of it? How did it? No, I went to Bournemouth looking for the house. In fact, it's so strange the way stories happen. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's one of those endlessly fascinating things. And not only for the likes of us, but I'm sure for many listeners too, just stories do slightly sort of just present themselves gradually out of the dark. Um, I'd lived with some uh, knowledge about the friendship between Stevenson and Henry James for quite some time. And Bournemouth was always a place in my head. It was a place where members of my family in the distant past would go on holiday. Um, and and it, I, once I started to read the letters and, and read their works in relation to them having been composed in Bournemouth or in and around Bournemouth, um, I started to see, if you like, echoes and chimes between the lives and the work and the friendship. Um, and I wanted, in a sense, to, as I have tried to do before for the LRB, become a sort of private investigator of a literary experience and try to map it out and to give a sort of, um, if you like, concordance of um, how those works came to be and how those friendships and how those people, how those characters came to be, in a sense. It was a golden period and for each of these writers, for Stevenson and for Henry James, the period in Bournemouth produced masterpieces, you know, some of the great living masterpieces that we still read today. Strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, as you said, kidnapped Child's Garden of Verses, uh, and for Henry James, the Princess Casimassima, um, some of his great short stories, Lessons of the Master. And I also think some of the concerns that he would take up in his later work were kind of seeded there in Bournemouth about literary reputation and uh, friendship and, uh, if you like, family secrets and, and marriage, the marriage between Stevenson's, the Stevenson's Fanny and Robert Lewis uh, was fascinating to Henry James. He admitted as much. And you see it finding its way into his work again and again uh, later. So going about putting this together becomes a kind of months of investigative work, really, first. I saw it almost as a play and thought of it as a play when I first visited uh, the house. I could hear the conversations in the rooms. I could hear the absences and the offstage whispers. That's what made it a play in my head, and it might still become one. But I realized when I visited that, and I stood in the ruins of Skerryvor. By the way, it was one of the only houses in Bournemouth to be destroyed in the Second World War as uh, German bombers made their way across the coast, having bombed the larger cities. They sometimes just let the last of their payload go over some lighted or supposedly um, blackouted towns. And I'm afraid the one bomb that came down that night landed on Skerryvore, Stevenson's old house. So it's been in ruins since the 1940s. Um, but when I was standing in those ruins and could still see the ivy that is described by Stevenson as having clad the building, peeking out the stone between the stones and the foundations of the house that are still there, that's very thrilling for literary journalists, I think, to find that you're actually able to revive not only the word and the story of the word, 
but the story of the people who wrote those words and who lived with them and who spoke them aloud to each other and who invested so much in their letters and in their relationships with each other. So I started, if you like, uh, that sort of strange uh, pas de deux that seems to exist quite often uh, in things I try to write between written evidence, paper evidence, archives, printed books and unpublished material and, uh, if you like, pavement pounding, going out there into to look at buildings or to look at places where um, they had walked. And I ended up surrounding myself. Um, I still have them here from where I'm talking to you. I have the maps uh, around me of Bournemouth in the 1840s so that I could track the streets that Henry James would have walked in to go in his visits to Alice or go up the hill for his suppers with Robert Louis Stevenson. And all of that, the shape of the landscape then and the pine trees and almost the the geology of the whole thing becomes part of the swell of what you're trying to investigate, just trying to give the reader an experience that they haven't had of these particular people in that particular time. And did you find that you could still, I haven't been to Bournemouth since I, yeah, summer, wet summer holidays as a child, you could see how it, what it was like in the 1880s, you could see their Bournemouth through the, or behind the, the modern town? I mean, lying there somewhere under the karaoke bars and uh, the ice cream parlours, you know, there were those streets. Um, the graves uh, of the, the Shelleys are still there. Uh, Mary Wilsoncraft's grave was also moved by uh, the aforementioned Sir Percy, who brought uh, the grave from St Pancras' uh, old churchyard in London down to Bournemouth. Mary Shelley, of course, the writer of Frankenstein, his mother is buried there at St Mary's Church in Bournemouth, next to uh, the remains of Percy Shelley too. So there are literary remains there and the streets give out to other streets and, and the names of those streets give out to the past too. So actually the, the Bournemouth of uh, 1884 is still very walkable through once you know it. And that's part of the job actually is to try and almost like laying down a piece of tracing paper on top of a current um, conurbation and then walking through it as a piece of archaeology, actually, for the LRB, trying to, trying to find how these lives, which are ghostly now, can actually be animated in a real place where people are living their lives today. That's always interested me. And actually, Tom, when I think about it, I, I realise that healthily or unhealthily, I've always uh, been writing either through or around buildings that are disappearing or have disappeared. I mean, all the buildings of my childhood had disappeared by the time I was 30, more or less. I mean, my first book, The Missing, in a sense, although it was about missing persons, was about the missing places, the missing buildings that they had occupied. I'll never forget standing in Gloucester, uh, in Gloucester in, uh, the famous Cromwell Street, where Frederick and Rosemary West had killed those women, and seeing the last of that building before it was taken away and realising that there was a sort of echo of buildings. Even the school that I went to was pulled down when I was in my 20s. Uh, the building that I grew up in was taken down. Um, and when I go there, it's, a, it's, it's like the Stevenson's house. It's a, it's a sort of empty space where grass and old bushes that I remember from childhood sort of grow uh, now in an empty spot. It can affect your imagination in quite a strange way that I feel. It means that you're constantly uh, arguing with time constantly trying to build something 
that was there once uh, and use language to do it. The bricks have gone, but the words are there. The words are there. Andrew Hagen, thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. You can read Andrew's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Eric Foner on the strange way the US president is elected, Claire Bucknell on Instagram poetry, and Seamus Perry on Stephen Spender. To subscribe to the LRB and get your first 12 issues for just £12, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. The LRB also now has a daily newsletter, Diverted Traffic, featuring a different piece from the paper's archive every day. A complete absence of references to plague, pandemics or quarantine is guaranteed, and the piece will be brought in front of the paywall for 24 hours, so you can share it with anyone you want to. To sign up to that, go to lrb.me forward slash traffic.